Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Luke. Uh, I'm going to be reading Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your ground, stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you may also know how I am, uh, how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith, faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be opening this part of the Bible with you tonight. Uh, I want to start with a question. Why, why are we so weird about Satan? I'm including myself in this, right? Why do we get uncomfortable, maybe a bit embarrassed when we talk about Satan or, or demons or spirits? How has Satan gone in our kind of culture, in the world around us, from being someone fearsome and, and disgusting and terrifying like it was here? How's it gone from that to more like this? Someone that we dress children as, right? Even, even many of us who are Christians, who place Christ at the center of our lives and who build our worldview around his gospel, who try to see the world the way God sees it, sometimes we still come to this bit and we kind of just mumble and, and shuffle our feet and move on. The, the biblical story presents Satan, the deceiver, as the great enemy of God, right? The architect of evil against God, the architect of good. And Jesus clearly had no problem believing in the devil or in active, conscious, spiritual beings, right? He interacts directly with demons. He frees people from their influence. And most people in history and most people around the world have, have worldviews, ways of seeing the world, which readily include spiritual beings and forces. But here we get weird about Satan. And it's, it's, 
it's what we call Western naturalism that brings us unstuck here. This is a dominant view in Western culture. It's older than Western culture, but it's kind of taken hold here. It's the view that the material world, the physical world, is the only one that there is. It's the view that only natural laws and forces, as opposed to supernatural or spiritual laws or forces, operate in the universe. The universe, according to naturalism, is a closed system. There's nothing outside of it. And for Christians here, we're prone to absorb that naturalism, right? Even though we worship God, who is a conscious spiritual being, we struggle sometimes to incorporate into our worldview the existence or the influence of other conscious spiritual beings. There's an author named Andrew Del Banco. He's not a, not a Christian. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And he argues in his book that a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available to deal with it. He argues that many secular people, without being able to appeal to the spiritual, instead attribute human cruelty and evil to, to psychological deprivation or social conditioning or unjust societal structures. But I think there's a risk here of, of trivializing, shifting blame for the evil which humans are capable of committing, right? We need a way to explain the existence of evil, don't we? When, when a man murders his wife and children, or when one culture oppresses another, or when humans enslave one another, we need a way to explain that. And appealing to, to psychology or sociology to explain evil, I would suggest is is unsatisfying. Those factors have great capacity to, to aggravate or accentuate or facilitate human evil, but not to birth it from nothing. Just this week in the, in the news, the family of a woman who'd been murdered by a man expressed deep anger that he was sent to psychiatric hospital instead of prison for his crime. For them, psychology wasn't a satisfying explanation for that evil. There is active, beyond the material evil in this world, which a naturalistic worldview can't handle. But, but a biblical worldview, on the other hand, understands evil as arising from the, the hearts and the actions of those who rejected the God of goodness. And those come from two, two races, from human beings and from spiritual beings. And as we reach the final section of Ephesians tonight, we see these spiritual beings come sharply into focus. So we're here at the climax of Ephesians, Paul's exploration of God's work in the heavenly realms to create a new saved people for himself through the work of Jesus. He descended from the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm, into the physical world and then rose to take his place at the right hand of God. And now the new humanity formed around him, the church, us, 
is God's great prize and glory as he matures us through our life together by his spirit. As we live holy lives together, we're part of his great plan in the spiritual realm. But this story has an enemy along with its great hero, right? The gospel is on display in the heavenly realms, and yet some in the heavenly realms oppose the gospel. There's still a battle for glory in the universe. So what we're going to do is we're first going to turn to verses 10 to 12 of Ephesians chapter 6 and consider the reality of the battle before us. If you've got uh, your, your Bible open there, have a look at those verses or bring it up on your phone otherwise. So Satan, this, this scheming manipulator in the big story, he's working hard to figure us out, right? And we need to figure him out. We need to be well equipped to fight. Like sports teams have opposition analysis, armies have scouts. So we have Ephesians 6 here to describe to us the battle that we face. So have a look at uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stand. To, to stand is Paul's um, exhortation, his encouragement for us through the attacks of Satan. He uses the language here and three other times. He says, stand your ground, stand, stand firm. Like, like bracing ourselves against the tide, trying to pull us off our feet. God empowers us to stay standing as the currents and the schemes of the devil swirl around us. For as long as God allows this world to endure, that many might be saved, so the devil continues to, to scheme and to plot and to snipe. But with God's armour, it need not pull us off our feet. And these two instructions here that you can see on the screen in, in verses 10 and 11, they capture really well the, the co-work between us and God in this spiritual battle. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armour of God. See how, how both involve us and God? God's calling each of us to action and to dependence, divine enabling and human action. Paul goes on, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So here's this, this reality which we've already been encountering here. This world is not just material. There is more in reality than what you can see and feel and measure. Sorry, science students. What's, what's Paul referring to here by the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world? What does he mean by that? Well, some have argued that he's talking about human and societal evils. So the rulers and the authorities, that might be things like individualism or, or racism or greed or unjust power structures. 
But I think actually that view depersonalizes evil and, and mutes the spiritual reality that's in view for Paul here. It also doesn't really line up with Paul's other references to rulers and authorities in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 that are references to beings which inhabit the spiritual reality of the created order. So there's these, these active conscious spiritual beings and it's in this spiritual realm, this dimension which underpins and overlays and permeates the physical that God's work in the church is being played out and his purposes are being achieved. The, the church which is from Christ and for Christ. It's the church which God nurtures and protects and matures for his glory as he holds us up as a prize before the whole heavenly assembly. He points to us and he says, this is my wisdom. This is my power. This is my grace on display. This is my enduring work. Never, never forget that there's something bigger going on when someone puts their faith in Jesus. There's something bigger going on even when we gather here together on a Sunday night, when we serve each other, when we sing together. Something is happening in the spiritual realm. We are God's glory in the spiritual reality of the cosmos. But evidently there are rulers and authorities, spiritual powers who are bent on evil on disrupting God's glorious plan for the church and who are committed to attacking us as we display his glory. And they're headed by the one we call Satan, the devil. How, how then should we expect the devil and spiritual forces to interact with our lives? What does it look like when the devil is at work? Well, a, couple, a couple of thoughts it's, it's normal, it's not dramatic. It's, it's not like a, not usually, like a horror movie, right, with spinning heads and exorcisms and green vomit. That's not what the devil's work normally looks like. But, but slow drifts, crumbling relationships, fracturing churches, rising despair, the devil's goal is the disruption of God's plan by the weakening of his people. And he'll do that individually, pulling believers away from God into selfishness or apathy or isolation. He'll do it to us as a body by sowing hate, by pulling us apart from each other, by distracting us from what's important with trivialities. He, he operates with a divide and conquer strategy. And, and the devil works with sinful human behaviors. His name means the deceiver. Like with Eve, like crafty, doubt-casting questions, nudges towards selfishness, nudges away from God. That's all that he needs to do his work. This comes back to what Del Banco spoke about, right? The source of evil. The, the devil doesn't need to birth evil in you. He doesn't need to. On, on this side of the new creation, there is still remnants of evil in each of us. But he nurtures it. He stokes it. Like, like fanning a coal into a flame and into an out-of-control blaze. And the devil's power is 
It's soft power. It's like, it's like the Cold War rather than an army marching to invade another, right? In the Cold War, America and Russia, they didn't march out armies to face each other on a field of battle. Instead, they, they manipulated, they influenced, they contributed to other conflicts, they armed other nations, angling and spying and threatening. But the devil's power is, is real. It's not just a metaphor for human evil or, or for mental illness or anything like that. It's real, but it's, it's soft power. And the devil wields this very real soft power knowing that he has already lost the war. When, when Christ rose from the grave, death could not hold him down. The decisive and ultimately fatal blow was struck. As we've seen in Ephesians, Christ inaugurated the new humanity which will endure into eternity. Right? God's glory in the heavenly realms will be complete. The devil is unable to stop it. The spiritual battle that we face is not one in which we desperately search for an opening to find victory. We already have victory in Jesus. He gives us all we need for the fight. But Satan is too desperately evil to concede. He keeps fighting his lost battle. It's a, it's a desperate fight. The word in verse 12 that's translated as struggle, have a look at that there if you've got your Bible in front of you. That's a word which is found nowhere else in the Bible. It's not the usual word that the Bible uses for, for battles or for fights or for struggles, but rather it's a word describing barehanded wrestling on the ground. It's one thing to stand at a battle with a bow and arrow. It's another thing to fight with, with swords and spears. But when you're on the ground with your enemy, with just your hands, that's a desperate and a messy and a dangerous struggle, right? I remember a few years ago going to Berlin. And at the very heart of that city, on the walls of the museums and the galleries, in the very middle of the city, there are still bullet holes from the very final moments of World War II. It blew my mind seeing those, that even there, those German soldiers were still fighting that war, right? With not even a faint hope of victory. And Satan has, has lost, but he is still fighting desperately, and there is still danger for us. So that's, that's the battle before us. That's the lay of the land. That's the enemy analysis. Our physical realm is intertwined with the spiritual realm and it's one in which God is holding up his church as his great prize and, and his glory. And yet there are evil beings in this spiritual realm set against God who attack his prize, the church, subtly but destructively attempting to thwart God's, God's plan through us. And so each of our lives then are impacted by these evil spiritual beings through their attacks on us and as we experience the effects of their work on other people and throughout the world. But we don't fight this battle on our own. We might be standing on the field of battle looking across the valley at a formidable and dangerous and hungry enemy. 
But the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the one who defeats enemy armies with just a few. He does it for his glory. But they say don't bring a knife to a gunfight, and we come well armed to this fight. That's what we see then in, in verses 13 to 17 of the passage. It's, it's like an itemization of the armor that God provides for this fight. This is, for the Marvel fans among us here, this is like the scene before the battle where Tony Stark is suiting up, right? Going from being unremarkable, fairly weak, to a formidable and ready Iron Man. So let me, let me read how God suits us up for this fight, verses 14 to 17. He says, stand firm then, there's that language again, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So let's think about where Paul has formed this metaphor from and then what the metaphor is communicating to us, this metaphor of armour. So Paul's imagery here of armour is, is likely a, a bit of a composite image. As he's writing Ephesians, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's either there with a Roman soldier chained to his wrist or standing in the room watching over him. Imagine Paul sitting there in his cell writing, trying to think of some language, some picture to show how it is that God arms us for this fight and looking up and seeing the soldier standing in front of him, right? The, the items which Paul uses, they line up with common items that a Roman soldier wore, one who represented the irresistible might and the battle prowess of Rome. But Paul's also drawing from one who's even more powerful than a Roman soldier, Listen to this verse on the screen, Isaiah 59, verse 17, speaking about God fighting for justice. It says, He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Or, see Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We'll see Isaiah 11, verse 5. This is speaking of the promised deliverer who will have the spirit of the Lord and who will defeat God's enemies. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The word there that's translated as faithfulness is the same word that Paul uses as truth in Ephesians 6. So who's Paul drawing on here for his imagery of armour? we we'll keep going. Let's have a look at Isaiah 49 verse 2. The servant of the Lord says this, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. The Old Testament many times describes God himself as our shield. Like in Proverbs 30, verse 5, that says, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Or this verse, Psalm 91, verses 4 to 5. God will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield 
and a rampart. You will not fear the terror of night or the arrow that flies by day. So in Paul's imagery, faith becomes our shield as the means by which we find refuge in God. God himself is our armour. He doesn't, he doesn't just hand us armour, right? Like Saul dressing up David and then sending him out to fight Goliath. No, he himself shields us. He protects us. He arms us. The armour isn't just from God. The armour is God. It's his gospel. It's what he's done for us that is our armour for the fight. The decisive blow has already been struck, right? It was God's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, which broke the power of Satan, which decided the outcome of the great war of the spiritual realm. So what do we need to fight Satan? Well, you need what we've already got, the historical reality and the truths and the benefits and the life of the gospel. What, di- what difference does that make? Well, if the armour of God is not just from God, but is God, then this passage here is not, at least not primarily, a set of disciplines to practice which make us immune to attacks from Satan. And certainly we should practice and, and nurture the virtues that are held up in this passage of being truthful people, being righteous, ready, faithful people, those, those things will be lived out expressions of the gospel which bring God glory in the church, right? Which bring about his big plan and stop Satan from thwarting it. But, but first, foremost, the armour is God's armour. Through his gospel, he gives us the armour which he wore triumphantly in our place against all the arrayed forces and armies of evil. Naked on the cross, leaving his grave clothes behind in the empty tomb, Christ wore the armor of God. He was the armor of God against Satan. One man in the armor of God decimated the entire gathered armies of spiritual evil, reducing them to, to scattered and retreating snipers desperately fighting a lost battle. And now his armour is ours. He's everything. And, and through him, we will overcome Satan and all the spiritual evils in this world. They might still be fighting, like German soldiers in the streets of Berlin, but hear these words from Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You don't need to live in fear of Satan. His days are numbered. But you shouldn't ignore him either or or live as if he didn't have any impact on our lives, as if he didn't exist. Maybe, Maybe you remember back in January last year, there was this disease that we were hearing about in China called coronavirus. We weren't sure whether it was going to be a big deal, whether it was going to come to Australia or not. And the government released a statement on the 23rd of January telling us to be alert but not alarmed. It was the worst piece of advice I've ever received in my life. <laughs> that, was, that was the time for alarm, right? For full alarm, for high alarm and beating the rush on toilet paper. Be alert but not alarmed, they said. But in, in the battle with Satan and the spiritual realm, be alert but not alarmed is exactly right. Don't, don't live in denial that Satan is real and, and active and against us. Be alert to his schemes and his strategies. Don't assume, don't, don't absorb Western naturalism. But don't be alarmed. Don't live in fear of Satan because the one who crushed his head is for us and he's in us. Well, God gives us one final resource for the fight in verses 18 to 20. And it's not the most glamorous or the most novel. It's not an Iron Man suit, but it's surely the most vital and battle-changing resource we could possess. He gives us prayer. The preacher John Piper gives a really helpful illustration of prayer in the spiritual battle of our lives. Prayer, he says, is a wartime walkie-talkie. A wartime walkie-talkie. And he's right, isn't he? If, if God's glorification of the church, his work in each of us and all of us is a war in the spiritual realm, and if we are the soldiers on the ground, then we need a line of communication to our commander, right? We need orders. We need encouragement. We need discipline. We need direction. It's as though Jesus, our, our field commander, has called each of us to himself given us a crucial mission to go and bear fruit, to go and make disciples of all nations. And he's handed us this personal walkie-talkie, this radio that's finely tuned to the frequency to directly reach God himself. And as we carry out his mission, we each have unfiltered direct access to him at all times to give us tactical advice, to send in air cover when we need it, to be there for us, right? In the spiritual battle for God's glory in your life, prayer is your life-saving connection to God himself, the one who provides the armor for you to fight the battle. So, friends, let's go and do battle, knowing that we are already on the winning side. There is a desperate and a frantic enemy out there hell-bent on thwarting God's plan to glorify himself by holding us up before the whole spiritual realm as his holy and saved people. And that enemy is strong, but we have one who is stronger. We have Christ himself and the life 
that he gives us as our armour against the enemy and we have a direct line to God himself to guide us through the minefield. So let's, let's use that line now. Let's pray to God for his strength for the fight. God, we want to glorify you in the heavenly realms. As you, as you hold us up, as you point to your work in us and you're glorified before all the heavenly rulers and authorities, God, we pray that you would bring about your plan for the church. And God, we pray that you would thwart those who oppose it. God, arm us for the spiritual battle in our lives. Thank you that we have Christ, we have his gospel, we have union with him, we have all we need for the fight. Please arm us with what we already have. Help us to be alert but not alarmed and to trust you for the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen.